We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, Judah, are, not, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Thanks, Abigail, for reading for us this morning. Let me pray for us for just a moment before we get started. Father, thank you that you have brought us here this morning and uh, that none of us are in this room by accident, but we're here because you've brought us here. And I pray that you would come and meet us now wherever we are this morning, because we are all over the place. Some of us, we are so convinced of the things we've been singing and praying, and some of us are so skeptical. Some of us have a hard time conceiving that we could actually ever believe these things are true, but we are here because you've brought us here. And we are all over the place. Some of us come full of joy. Others of us come full of, full of sorrow. We are in a season of grieving. Some of us come in a season of despair. The holidays are sad days for us. And others of us just come numbed by our own comfort. Lord, wherever we are this morning, thank you that you see us. Thank you that you know exactly what we need to hear and how we need to hear it. And so we pray that you would come and speak to us now in such a way that our lives would be changed. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in the middle of, uh, not in the middle, kind of getting towards the end, actually, of of a Christmas sermon series called Longing. And each week we've been looking at the radical claim that Christmas... Is not, is, is not really about just parties and presents and kind of time with family, but it, what it's really about, what Christmas is really about, is it is about the fulfillment of our deepest longings. 
our deepest human longings. We've been singing a lot of songs on Sundays during Advent, a lot of Christmas songs, and there are a lot of great ones. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Angels We've Heard on High, Go Tell It on the Mountain. But there's another another Christmas hymn that's a little less familiar, and I was thinking about it this week. It's called A Little Town of Bethlehem. And there's this little line uh, in this hymn that, that goes like this. It says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And the radical claim of Christmas is that our greatest hopes and our deepest desires are met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We long for love. And Christmas says that because of Jesus, you can have it. And we long for hope. And and we talked about this. Christmas says that because of Jesus, you can have it. And we long for peace. We are desperate for peace in our world and in our own lives. And Christmas says that you can have it. And today we're going to be looking at our longing for joy. And, you know, typically I try to spend a little bit of time at the beginning of each of these sermons trying to convince you of why, kind of why we, why we picked these particular longings. But I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on trying to convince you that we long for joy. We long for joy. Augustine once wrote in his confessions, he said, without exception, we all long for happiness All agree that they want to be happy. They may all search for it in different ways, but all try their hardest to reach the same goal, and that is joy. And we long for joy, and what's really interesting, when you open the Gospels and you begin to read all of these accounts of Jesus' birth, is that the theme of joy keeps showing up. It's all over the place. I really haven't seen it until this year, and kind of preparing for this sermon series, but joy is all over the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth. In Luke chapter 1, when the angel comes to Mary to tell her that she is going to be pregnant and with child, the very first word from the angel to Mary is rejoice. The very first word at Christmas is a call to joy. And then later in that same chapter, in Luke chapter 1, when Mary sings her her infamous Magnificat, she says this. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. Joy is all over the place. We saw it last week uh, in our our sermon text for last week, which was from Luke 2, when the shepherds come, uh, the angels come to announce to the shepherds that Christ has been born. And they say, we bring you good news of great joy. It's all over the place. And it's all over this passage as well, because in verse 10, when the Magi, who, who basically travel the ends of the earth to find their way to Jesus, when they finally meet him, it says in verse 10 that they were what? Overjoyed. And actually in the Greek, it's even stronger than that. It says that they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Now, one of the ways that you know you've really understood Christmas is that supernatural joy has broken into your life. And I'm not just talking about some sort of happy, clappy joy that denies sorrow or grief. There are many Eastern religions that actually do that. And that is not the kind of joy that any of us need. No, this is a joy that is honest about life in a broken world. 
that is honest about the darkness, that is honest about our tears, and yet it is still able to stand. And that is the kind of joy that all of us desperately long for. We all need. We all want. And this passage says you can have it. And what I want to do this morning is consider three things that it teaches us about how to get it. How do you get this joy? Number one, embrace the king. Number two, behold the treasure. Number three, follow the way. Embrace the king, behold the treasure, follow the way. Okay, first, embrace the king. Now before we get to these magi, let's, let's talk about Herod for just a moment. Because we're talking about joy this morning. And Herod is the most joyless person in this passage. What do we know about Herod? Verse 1 tells us that he was a king. And we actually know this from history that Herod was appointed king of the Jews by Rome. And we know this. He was a wildly successful king. He was called Herod the Great. He restored the temple in Jerusalem. He conquered lands. He built palaces and theaters. He even built entire cities. Herod had massive wealth and stature. Here's something else we know about him. He was not very excited about the birth of Jesus. You see this that in verse 3, that when the Magi come to Bethlehem and tell him and ask him, where is the baby who's been born king of the Jews? In verse 3, it says that Herod was disturbed. And that's kind of the understatement of the passage, actually. Because he was so disturbed, what did he do? Herod ordered that every boy under the age of two in Bethlehem be killed. Because he wanted to do away with Jesus. Now, why is he so disturbed? And the answer is simple. When, if you want to be king, and someone else shows up that everyone else says is the king, and who will eventually claim that he is the king, then that person is a threat. They are a threat to your throne. They are a threat to your power. They are a threat to your rule and to your autonomy. And so you are not going to be neutral. You're not going to be excited. You're going to be disturbed. You're going to be opposed. And you see, this is not just Herod, but it is all of us. There is an inherent resistance in the human heart to a God who claims absolute authority and control over how we live and what we do. Thomas Nagel taught philosophy for years at NYU. And he was not a, he's not a Christian. And he, he wrote, once wrote this about his own unbelief in God. He said, I speak from personal experience. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people that I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and hope that my belief is right. It's that I hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare. I am curious, but I doubt that there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether there is a God. Now that is so interesting because one of the things that I hear often from people who are skeptical of Christianity as they say, you know what? None of this stuff is true. And the only reason that people believe in God 
is because they have these psychological or emotional needs that make them want to believe. They feel guilty. And so they need something that can assuage their guilt. Or they feel like life has no meaning or purpose, and so they need something that can bring meaning and purpose to life. Or, or, or they need a crutch to kind of get them through suffering, to have this false hope about a future where suffering will be no more. And Nagel says, you know, this is so different because he, what he's saying is he actually has psychological and emotional re- reasons that make him not want to believe in God. And you know what the reason is? He calls it the cosmic authority problem. That if there is a God, then that means he cannot live however he wants to live. He doesn't have authority over his own life. For those of you who are here today and you're not convinced of Christianity, would would you be willing to consider that the reason you believe Christianity is not true is not simply because it's not true, but it's because you don't want it to be true. You don't want a God who tells you how to live. You don't want a king. See, and why don't we want this? Why are we so resistant? And and I'm not just talking to, to skeptics in here. I'm talking to every Christian in this room because we all have parts of our lives that we resist God's authority. All of us. Why is that? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where God put Adam and Eve in paradise. It was a world of joy. And the one thing he told them not to do, they did. Why did they do it? They did it because they thought God was trying to put a cap on their joy. They thought he was holding out on them. They didn't trust him as their king, and so they sought to be their own king and their own queen. And this is a story of every human heart. We resist God as our king because as one writer writes, we do not believe that joy is the serious business of heaven. Now we need to move on here to point two, but let me just summarize it with this. There is no one who is more concerned about your joy than God, and everything that he calls you to in your life is for your good. But you only experience that joy to the degree that you submit every part of your life to him. Where in your life do you think that God is holding out on you? Where are you resisting him as king and you need to embrace him as king so that joy can come Point two, behold the treasure. One of the main themes of this passage is worship. Uh, We've got 12 verses here, and the word worship shows up three times. Everyone in this passage is worshiping. Everyone, the Magi are worshiping. Herod is worshiping. Both are worshiping, but they are worshiping very different things. The Magi, they're worshiping one thing, but Herod is worshiping an entirely different thing. What's Herod worshiping? Power, actually. See, and not only are they worshiping different things, but they are experiencing different things. Herod feels threatened. But the Magi are overjoyed. 
Now, I want you to make the connection here. The Magi are worshiping one thing, and they have joy. Herod is worshiping another, another thing, and he is joyless. And so one of the main things that Matthew is telling us here is that there is a direct correlation in your life and my life between what you worship and your experience of joy. Let me say that again. There is a direct correlation in our lives between what we worship and our experience of joy. And if you think about it, we actually know this to be true. Uh, David Foster Wallace, who's a great American author who did not identify as a Christian, he once wrote this. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel that you, like you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. See, what Wallace is saying is this. The question is not if you worship. The question is what you worship. That like everyone in this passage, we are all worshiping something. We all have something that we build our identity on, our sense of meaning on, something that we look to in life and we say, if I don't have this, I cannot have a full life. I cannot have a happy life. Whether it's comfort or career or curating the perfect family, or a relationship, or whatever it is. And what Wallace says is that the moment you make any of these things ultimate in life, even though they promise you joy, they will eventually take it from you. And you see, friends, when you realize that the treasures of this world cannot satisfy you, you basically have three options. Option one is, if you've actually gotten what you wanted in life, if things have gone well, but it hasn't been like what you thought it would be, you're still thirsting for something else. If you got what you wanted, you can blame the thing. You can say, well, it must be something else. I just need to change what I'm chasing. You know, I thought it was career, but gosh, maybe it's a family. Or I thought it was marriage, but, you know, maybe it's independence. Maybe it's not being tethered to any one person. But if you locate the problem in what you were chasing, it just makes you a fool. And it is only a matter of time before you're back to square one in the end. Here's option two. You don't blame the thing, but if you haven't gotten what you wanted, you can blame yourself. If you haven't been as successful as you hoped, if you haven't found the love that you've longed for, if you've made a mess of your life, you can blame yourself. You can say, if only I had done this or that differently. But to locate the problem in yourself, you know what that does? It just makes you feel depressed and self-loathing. You can look to the thing. You can look to yourself. Option three. 
you can look to the only treasure in this world that can actually fill you, that can actually bring you joy. Look at the rest of verse 11. It says that these magi opened their treasures and presented Jesus with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. You know, these were valuable gifts. Gold was the greatest asset of the day. They are laying at Jesus' feet, not just any possession, but they are laying at Jesus' feet their most treasured possession. And the question is, why would they give him these things? And the answer is because they found something even more valuable than these things. They beheld a treasure that is more precious than their gold or their stuff. They found something. They actually found someone that when you worship him, he does not take joy, but he actually brings joy. One of my favorite scenes in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia is there's this scene where this little girl named Jill is at the top of a very high mountain. And she has been on a long hike, a long journey, a long adventure, and she is desperately thirsty. And after wondering for some time, she comes upon this beautiful stream. But here's the problem. Between her and this stream is this lion, Aslan. And she's terrified. C.S. Lewis writes about it this way. He says, the lion said to her, are you thirsty? And Jill replies, I am dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. But Jill is too afraid, and so she asks, would you mind going away while I do? And the lion answered, this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. And Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. Well, I dare not come then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Well, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then, said Jill. And the lion replied, there is no other stream. And the radical claim of Christianity is that there is no other stream. There is no other source. There is no other treasure that can actually fill you. That can actually give you the joy that you long for. Everything else in life that you worship takes joy from you inevitably. Jesus is the one thing that you worship when you worship him. He gives joy. And that's a radical claim and it needs a little bit of explanation, which brings us to point three. Matthew ends these verses by saying in verse 12 that having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the Magi returned to their country by another route. Now, the word route is actually, it's actually the word way. What it actually says is the Magi went home another way. And what New Testament scholars have noted is that this little word is like a stick of dynamite in Matthew's gospel. 
The word way, just three letters. But it is so significant in Matthew's gospel. It has all of these theological overtones. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the narrow way. The narrow way of following him. And then the book of Acts actually picks up on this when it's talking about the early Christians, the first Christians. It doesn't call them Christians. You know what Christians are called in the book of Acts? They are called followers of the way. When you meet Jesus, the same thing that happened to these magi happens to you. Your life is put on an entirely new trajectory, an entirely new way, an entirely new path. And it is the way to joy, but it is a strange path to joy because everything about this path to joy is totally counterintuitive to how we think joy actually comes in this world. The world says you get joy by acquiring riches. Jesus says you get joy by giving your riches away. The world says you get joy through power. Jesus says you get it through weakness. The world says you get it through getting even. And Jesus says you get it through showing mercy. The world says you get it through being served. And Jesus says you get it through serving others. Everything about the way of Jesus is totally contrary to how we think joy comes. In Christianity, the way up is down. The way to live is to die. And the way to be great is to get low. And I was thinking about that this week and it reminded me of Henry Nouwen, who's a very prominent author, speaker, scholar, writer. He was a professor at both Harvard and Yale. And in the mid-80s, he was offered a job on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. He was asked to come be the pastor at a facility, at a center that was dedicated to caring for people with severe intellectual disabilities. To leave these Ivy League schools meant going from an institution of prestige and honor and stature to basically living a life of obscurity. It would mean spoon-feeding people. It would mean helping people use the bathroom. It would mean changing soiled sheets in the middle of the night. And Henry Nowen took the job. And he spent the last 10 years of his life getting low and of emptying, emptying himself for the sake of others. And, and after all of it, he said this. He said, we often live as if our happiness depended on having. But I don't know anyone who is really happy because of what he or she has. True joy comes from the giving of ourselves to others. A happy life is a life for others. One of the ways you know you understood the gospel and who Jesus is and what it means to know him is that your life is on an entirely new trajectory of loving and serving others. And it doesn't mean you have to quit your job and do what Henry Nouwen did, but it does mean that radical 
sacrifice and servanthood begins to show up in your life and in your friendships and in your marriage and in your parenting and in your place of work and with the poor and with those who are in need and with the city. See, it is, it is a strange path to joy. The way of Jesus is a strange path to joy, but it is the way that he calls all of us to. And use it not just so that I can flourish, but so that others can flourish. What would this place look like if that happened? And maybe you hear that and you think, you know, that sounds really inspiring, but it sounds really hard. (laughs) And maybe too hard. I I don't know if I can give myself like that. I don't know if I want to give of myself like that. Well, before you can give of yourself like that to others, Christianity says you must see of the ways that Jesus has given of himself for you. Before you can live a life of sacrifice that Jesus calls you to live for him, you have to see the life of sacrifice that he lived for you. You know, the most beautiful part of this passage that we're looking at today is that it tells the story of Magi who traveled from the far ends of the earth to find Jesus. But you know what Christmas means? Christmas tells the story of a God who traveled from heaven to earth to find us. He gave up everything he had. He gave up every treasure he had, all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the power. And he came into this world, into a manger and ultimately onto a cross. And he did it all that so we could have joy. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this. It says he didn't just do it so we could have joy. It says that he did it because we are his joy. And only the Christian gospel tells you that God looks at you like that. You see, everything else in this life that you worship, beauty, money, power, career, All of these things will demand that you sacrifice yourself to get them. What we find at this table is the only thing that you can worship in this world who when you worship him, he sacrifices to get you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy that is offered to us in this table the joy of knowing you and of following you and of belonging to you. And we thank you that it has all been secured for us, not because of what we have done, but because of what your son has done 
for us. And so we pray that you would fill us this morning with joy as we eat and drink together. In Christ's name, amen.